This is a Dubai Eye 103.8 podcast. You're listening to the UAE's number one talk radio station. This is Afternoons on Dubai Eye 103.8. Alan Farmer with you on today's episode of Afternoons. We were in conversation with clinical psychologist Dr. Thraya about individual collective societal mental health during times of crisis from the COVID pandemic to conflict and war. What can we do to safeguard ourselves? And what was her take on some effective strategies for dealing with it? And in light of some really shocking stats coming out of the UK, we brought in Ali Hashmi from Gluca to talk about undiagnosed diabetes. What are the numbers like here in the UAE? And what can the consequences be if it is left untreated? A doctor of a different kind, Dr. Neil Hopkin, was in the studio as we talked about how to get the most out of your school, the questions to ask, and when is it time to say it's just not working? And Mr. and Mrs. Muscle, live in the studio, otherwise known as Viv and Mike. They're on a mission to get the world moving uh, through their app ahead of a big event this weekend. And what are some of their strategies for getting over those obstacles, that total lack of motivation? It is a psychology hour and today we're exploring a topic that affects us all, whether we realise it or not, managing our mental health during challenging times from COVID-19 pandemic to conflicts to personal trauma. The need for effective mental health strategies has actually really never been more pressing. Joining us now, clinical psychologist Dr. Thuraya from the Human Relations Institute and Clinic, seasoned clinical psychologist, um, sharing insights and, yeah, the practical advice that we know and love her for, for navigating what can feel like really turbulent waters. The text lines are open. Um, Dr. T, I know we're... Oh my goodness, are we nearly four years out of the, the start of the pandemic? Oh, wow. Whew. Um, I think it's probably enough time to have a little reflect, you know, and obviously what's, what's happening now in, in, other, in other spaces. Um, do you notice a spike in inquiries and appointments, people reaching out for expert psychologists during times of crisis? Oh, definitely, definitely. What we'll see is there's a, a very big... Uh, spike in people asking for help during times of uncertainty. Mm. And I think the uncertainty piece is the crucial part because with that unknown brings a lot of anxiety and a lot of uh, underlying issues that maybe have not been you know, dealt with before and that now are coming out in, in ways that you can't really prepare for. So let's talk about some of those common mental health challenges that you mentioned anxiety being mm-hmm. one. And we can look at COVID, but we can also t- look at, you know, global conflicts as well. So anxiety, not being in control of a situation. Absolutely. What about things like situational depression? For sure. You have depressive symptoms will come out. Actually, uh, trauma symptoms could even come out. So post-traumatic stress disorder is reignited for a lot of individuals. So re-traumatization. You have a lot of individuals who will have a spike in their current mental health difficulties that they have. So a person who, let's say, experiences obsessive compulsive disorder. And during the time like COVID, for instance, their obsessive compulsive tendencies spiked quite a bit. And so you'll notice that a lot of these different um, uh, situations or crises that happen will exacerbate what we're already experiencing or what we're kind of trying to push down quite a bit. I was listening to a podcast with Bryony Gordon the other day and she's um, she's a journalist and author. She's written a book called Mad Woman, which is her kind of memoir. She's suffered from really debilitating OCD and anxiety and, and disordered eating over the years. And she was reflecting on the pandemic and saying, actually, people that had had anxiety 
actually coped okay during the pandemic because they were like, well, we're kind of used to feeling like this. You know, that we're, we're all right. Whereas people who perhaps had felt emotionally or psychologically healthy, that juxtaposition of, you know, global chaos mm. was felt perhaps a bit more keenly. I mean, if that's... I wouldn't, I wouldn't really say that's true for a lot of people, yeah. to be honest, because uh, we actually saw a lot more difficulty for individuals who had been experiencing anxiety or obsessive compulsive disorder. So I wouldn't necessarily say that's everybody's experience. Mm. But what I would say is that the resources that you have, be it internal or external resources, can be very beneficial to creating protective factors for your mental health to be kind of stabilized, especially in these uncertain times. Dr. Thurai with us today. We've had some questions relating to individual mental health, but also societal mental health. We're going to be talking, exploring the concept of collective grief next. Um, Mikey's been in touch saying, um, not sure if you watched Succession, but the concept of pre-grieving was mentioned. I'd never heard of it before. What does Dr. T think? Talking collective grief and individual grief as well next. Clinical psychologist Dr. Thuraya on hand from the Human Relations Institute in Clinic. And so we talk about mental health challenges for individuals, for communities, for societies during times of, well, conflict, genocide, pandemic, and ultimately what we can control. I wanted to ask you about a phrase I'd never heard of a year ago, Thuraya, which is collective grief. And it has become more talked about, more popularised, and I'm grateful to that because I actually think it explains how an awful lot of us are feeling right now. You know, Mm -hmm. we've got screens around us now. We know a lot of us spending a lot of time on our phones looking at um, the ongoing crisis. Um, Could you explain from a psychological point of view what collective grief is? Well, you know, it's essentially very similar to um, the grief that we experience as individuals, except we experience it as a group or as a nation or as as a humanity. Right. So it's it's the grief that we all share together. And on some level, that kind of grief can be exacerbated because there's just so much that everybody's processing and it's hard to be there for each other. Mm-hmm. And at the same time, sometimes it can be helpful because you feel so supported because other people are also experiencing similar things. The first time, I guess, and I wasn't aware of it at the time, I guess when I was a child and Princess Diana died and we mm-hmm. saw these you know, great swathes of flowers being laid at the palace gates and... You know, people who really had absolutely no connection to this woman right. um, being swept up in this collective grief. And I think it's a, a great message um, here that's come in uh, from Sue saying, is there a danger of support groups, re-collective grief, dragging each other down rather than bring each other up? So I wanted to ask a, a little bit about this because, you know, because of what's happening in Palestine, there has been a huge amount of, you know, outpouring and coming together. And that's taken different forms, whether mm-hmm. it is, you know, raising money, you know, yoga, um, coming together and talking. Is there, is there a danger of that, of, you know, misery loves company? You know, it's interesting. It's not just obviously with what's happening now in terms of uh, of Palestine, but even with IVF groups, let's say, or, or or other support groups, I've heard many individuals say, you know, the support group is dragging me down. They're just so negative. There's just a lot of negativity there. So there is always that risk. But the hope is that when you have that shared feeling of collective guilt, when there is a support group, that you create a system where you're empowering each other. Mm-hmm. You're helping each other out of these feelings. You're helping each 
each other get through the day. You're helping each other function on your day-to-day basis rather than, you know, drag into a constant reminder of the negativity of the situation. That must be really hard because I'm sure a lot of people seek out these groups as a safe space to say mm-hmm. exactly how they're feeling and right. maybe admit to feelings that they couldn't say to their partner or their friends because they couldn't expect that person. And I think the IVF group is a really good example there. You know, you, you couldn't expect your husband or your friend who's you know just had a bouncing baby to possibly understand what you're going through. Mm-hmm. So to have this space to go, God, I've had a really rubbish day and I'm really struggling today right. is really, really powerful. But as you say, when it becomes this spiral of and sometimes competitive grief as well absolutely which is one of my absolute bugbears on facebook i don't know if you've I don't know if you've ever seen if you've seen this no oh my goodness um i had a friend pass away last year and there was a facebook group set up in her memory and it became this kind of i must out grief you because i was a closer friend oh god or you know it was ghoulish to mm. be honest and again it's supposed to be the safe space but it became just really yeah, just competitive and unpleasant, I think. Um, but we're going to be talking some strategies next, guys. So we've had a number of questions asking Dr. Thryer about the concept of pre-grieving, about dealing with trauma later. And a long message here from Julianne, which I'm going to unpack, saying, is it just me or does the world feel off? Like people aren't interested in much. I don't think you're alone in that, but we're going to be having a look at why that might be. A message here saying, we have been through years of on and off collective trauma and then act like nothing happened. We're all exhausted. We're all disassociating. We're still healing and many don't have any guidance. I've just moved here from the UK where we also had years of lockdown. Years. We built new habits. It takes 30 days to make a habit feel ingrained and we sat and doom scrolled or gamed or what everyone did for years. So long-term effects of these events... Clinical psychologist Dr. Thry with us today from the Human Relations Institute and Clinic. We are talking about navigating turbulent waters when collectively times are tough, whether it is through crisis, pandemic, conflict, and how it impacts the mental well-being of individuals, of communities, of societies as well. Um, I just asked you off air about what was keeping you busy and you were generous enough to say, you know, not going to name names, but, you know, the, the big theme is really the ongoing crisis um, in the Middle East is affecting everyone in ways that perhaps we we wouldn't have necessarily thought of six months ago. Mm -hmm. And I can only speak of myself and obviously people that I'm friends with, but there's like good days and bad days. Right. You know, some days everything feels really heightened and really raw, like you've had a layer of skin, you know, ripped off you and you see something and it gets to the absolute heart of you and you can't Mm -hmm. unsee something. And then some days... I feel quite numb yeah. and things might not come up on my Instagram or I give myself a little break. And I remember, must be before Christmas now, seeing something that, you know, by looking at some of these images, and I'm not saying we shouldn't because we have to absolutely educate ourselves. We're really re-traumatizing ourselves mm. again and again and again. And as humans, we're not built to be seeing this kind of horror on a daily or hourly basis. Right. At this level or this magnitude either. So what, what kind of advice are you giving people? Thraya? It's really hard because, you know, because, it, it, you know, being in this region and just living amongst so many different people, so many different, you know, nationalities, but everybody on a human level is kind of on the same page and, and just 
going through it makes it very difficult for people to advise the other person on what to do, right? Mm -hmm. Because you don't even know what you're doing with yourself. But what we're realizing is that we're kind of moving in the in the space internally in our bodies where we're going into what we call hyperarousal, where we are activated, where our amygdala, where we process our feelings is, is very activated and we are unable to calm down from it, especially when we see images or we hear things or we're watching the news. And then by the time we get home and we're going through that, and that's on top of work, on top of kids, on top of marriage, on top of so many other things, and traffic in Dubai. Mm-hmm. And then so all of this stuff. And then we just get home and we drop into what we call hypo arousal, which is just this numbness, this disconnection, this absolute like, I'm not in the mood. I don't care. I just Can't want out. This. I'm yeah. done. Mm-hmm. And this is kind of where we are. We're oscillating between these two extremes because the amount of intensity of what we're seeing, what we're experiencing internally is making it very difficult to be able to regulate our emotions and even get to the the middle ground, which we call the window of tolerance. And so we're really recommending for people to, you know, space things out. Don't, I mean, definitely watch, definitely share, but take it easy. If you're feeling an overwhelm internally, do some breathing, some meditation, do something that you enjoy, sit with family members, friends, you know, be a little bit more positive in certain areas. Pets are phenomenal, especially if you have cats. This is not to say cats are better than dogs, but I'm just saying, <laughs> I'm, I, I swear, I'm not saying cats are better than dogs, but cats have an innate way to, when they purr, they're actually helping your nervous system. They're actually helping you regulate your nervous system and they're tackling your parasympathetic nervous system, which is part of our rest and digest. So, so uh, pets can be very helpful. Kids are very helpful if they're not driving you crazy. Friends, family, things like that, but also tap into your internal resources. Like go into that journaling, go into that meditation, do a lot of breathing exercises. Make sure that you take care of your basics, your mm-hmm. sleep, your food, your exercise, things like that, because that's the way that you can be able to handle the amount that we're seeing and the intensity of what we're seeing, but also balancing your mental health in the process. Thank you so much for that. I, I think that's really connected with an awful lot of people now. And that's it's useful, it's doable stuff because I think we can spiral. I know I have, for, right. for sure. And it's kind of like, well, I don't know how to get out of this. And then, as you say, a good night's sleep or mm-hmm. some connection or distraction. And you're like, okay, I feel a bit stronger today, right. if that makes sense. Um, Julianne's saying, hi both. Does the world feel a bit off? Like the people aren't interested. I know this might sound ranty, but I'm interested in your take. I feel like there's a weird vibe out there. Um, at the weekends, I saw groups of people in a bar who presumably went out together from choice just gazing at their phones. I've never been anti-tech, but I do feel like this is affecting communication. My friend is worried about her dad because he constantly watches videos of fights. I know a lot of people in my age group feeling a bit meh, have very little enthusiasm. It's not just middle age. I don't think so anyway. Um, an online group I'm in has almost no posts. Things are being cancelled. I'm in touch with a few exes who do nothing but gaming. One has no friends and isn't bothered. Do you think social anxiety is on the rise? I'm just curious to think if you're getting this vibe too. I definitely think that we're a lot more disconnected than we used to be. And I think a a lot of that has to do with the fact that we're so dysregulated because we're not reconnecting to ourselves. And yes, social media, but our phones have a big part to play in that. But I think we are also kind of falling into that and we're we're not being very mindful and Mm -hmm. we're not being very present. And that's what is kind of contributing to this. Julianne, I hear you. A says, can you ask Dr. T about dealing with trauma years later? My husband was in a car crash where there was a fatality and wasn't offered any support at the time. He does have flashbacks, gets anxious when he's driving sometimes. It was 20 years ago. Would any treatment actually be effective now? 
Definitely. So treatment can definitely be effective. And what what you're referring to is essentially what we diagnose as post-traumatic stress disorder. I'm not diagnosing your husband, don't misunderstand me. But what I'm saying is the the reason why it's post-traumatic stress disorder, because it could be something that could be years down the line. It could be something that the person is experiencing that didn't experience in the beginning, but only experiences 10, 15, 20 years down the line. So post-traumatic stress disorder can be very very difficult for an individual because it's like they're reliving the trauma and they feel that unsafety and that insecurity in that moment consistently. Mm-hmm. So definitely there's so many different ways to do it. You have EMDR is a great way. What's that? Um, it's eye movement desensitization reprocessing. That's one way to do it. You have a lot of different trauma therapies that do it as well. And uh, But you definitely want something trauma-focused. So that would be very helpful. Up next, we're going to come to Mikey's message. He's asking about pre-grieving. I did watch Succession, Mikey, and it is a very interesting concept. But what does our expert psychologist have to say? We're going to find out very soon. Joining us in studio as we talk about mental health collectively and individually during times of turmoil, we have got clinical psychologist Dr. Thuraya from the Human Relations Institute and Clinic. And going to the text line, a really interesting one. This is from Mikey saying, not sure if you guys watch Succession, but the concept of pre-grieving was mentioned. I'd never heard of it before. What does Dr. T think? So this was... Roman Roy, uh, pre-grieving, and he was saying that he was, he's dealing with it now. Bef- before death happens, he was, he was, he was grieving. Spoiler alert: he really wasn't, um, was not okay. When so don't watch it, basically. <laughs> uh, definitely watch Succession. Um, but pre-grieving, what's your take on that? So actually, it's interesting. Pre-grieving was something that we just figured out. A f- about a decade ago, to be honest. Um, it's We also call it anticipatory grief. So essentially what it is is that you know that the person's going to pass and in that time you start the grieving process prior to their death. And this can be very helpful in, in the process. At times, depending on the individual, obviously, it can be a lot harder. But um, what ends up happening is that when the person passes, there's a lot more... Um, uh, meaning that's assigned and the usually the stage of grief, uh, sorry, denial and shock does not happen during that, that time. So there's a lot more peace and acceptance that happens towards the end. That's interesting. So you, you've got time to recalibrate, mm-hmm. I guess, about what might happen if there is, you know, an, an illness or an inevitability about what's right. going to happen. Interesting. It's not as shocking, right? Yeah. So that's what usually happens with death that just happens suddenly. So it's that shock, that initial denial, that disbelief, that mm-hmm. confusion. That is what we find hardest to move past in the beginning. But with preemptive grief or with anticipatory grief, what ends up happening is that we understand that this is what's happening. Now, we might experience the shock and the and the confusion in the beginning, but by the time it comes to the death, there is some form of acceptance, which helps us move through the grieving stages a little bit easier. Thank you, Thraya. Um Lastly, as we do navigate the you know, ongoing challenges globally, what message of hope or encouragement would you like to offer anyone that might be struggling with their mental health right now? Well, one thing I would say is do your best to take care of yourself. And that could come in any format that you require. Obviously, the healthy format would be best. Um, And I would say reach out to any type of professional. If you feel that 
it's too much to handle yourself. Remember, you don't have to have, you know, there's no prerequisite for going to therapy. You can just go to the therapist once, have a quick chit chat, you know, you're feeling overwhelmed. It, it could be that or you could you kind of can work through it on your own, but make sure to take care of yourself because what we're all experiencing right now on this planet is extremely difficult on so many different levels. And this amount of overwhelm that we're experiencing, not just because of what's happening, but also because we're seeing it constantly with no break whatsoever. Mm -hmm. That is too much for our nervous system. So take care of yourself. And if you need help, ask for it. Well said indeed. Dr. Thraya is speaking to us. Clinical Clinical psychologist at the Human Relations Institute and Clinic. education this hour and ultimately how to get the most out of your school. I got the email this morning, the re-enrolment form being sent. Dr. Neil Hopkin in the studio, he leads the academic leadership team at Fortis Education. I said, God, I'm not going to age you, Neil, but decades of experience as an educator. Almost centuries, Helen. Almost, Almost. centuries. Gosh, how are you? I'm very well, thank you. And I'm enjoying your new haircut. Well, thank you so much. I am too, for sheer laziness reasons. It's, um, it's a mum cut. <laughs> I'm, I'm trying to make my peace with it. Um, I've got lots of questions for you on this, Neil, because I feel like one of the hottest topics right now, and you are not privy to this, but in the mum Facebook groups, is people coming out to Dubai from the UK or other parts, other parts of the world who, of course, has education as a number one priority for their kids. How do we choose a school? And they'll list this great, you know, shopping list of schools going, has anyone got experience with this one? What do you think of that one? And what you end up having is a huge number of people piling on and basically advocating for their school because the idea was, if you choose the school that we chose, that validates my decision and that makes me right. But it's so much more personal than that. What advice would you give to someone who might have a friend moving into the country or if you know, this podcast gets out uh, to other parts of the world in terms of how to pick the best school for your kid here? Well, the popular answer, of course, is always to uh, say word of mouth is the most important thing and to talk to your friends, talk to people that are at schools. But you're absolutely right. And you, you've put your finger on the button, really, um, because everybody's tastes are different. It's, it's like saying, um, look, I, I'm thinking of, of, of choosing a partner for life. Um, who would you recommend? Well, <laughs> you know, I mean, they might be a good choice for you, but they might not be a good choice for me. And so the reality is that everything is very personal. I think... There are certain things, of course, that you might know as a family that matter to you. Maybe you're a very sporty family. Maybe you are Mr. and Mrs. Muscle. And so you want to make sure that uh, your child is going to go to a very pro-sports type school. Mm. Maybe um, you're Mr. and Mrs. Mozart and you want to make sure that that your child is going to go to uh, a school that majors on the performing arts. There are certain things you know that you can do an analysis via Google from home. Everything else counts on the visit. The visit is all important to that school. And, and it's always very difficult if families choose a school via a friend in the country or, or, or a family member. And a friend who might have a similar ethos, a similar budget, I think is really important, let's be honest, um, in this part of the world when are thinking about paying for that education. I want to ask you next, Neil, um, about schools have ups and downs. They have ebbs and flows depending on leadership, you know, senior leadership, teachers population coming in so the kind of questions you can ask 
to make sure you're getting to the heart of the matter. Neil Hopkins with us today. Dr. Neil, should I say, from Fortis Education. We've had messages asking about um, when should you give up on a school and just admit that it's not a good fit. That's Fab on 4001. Great, great question. Great name, Fab. Dr. Neil Hopkin is with us today. He leads the academic leadership team at Fortis Education, two schools here in the UAE. Um, And those re-enrolment forms are out, which I feel like is very early in February. And it's tricky because you can love a school, but maybe not love the principal. Your one child could be having a great experience. The other one could have a bit of a dud of a teacher. Um, This happened to us a couple of years ago. She's not in Dubai anymore, so I can say this. Um, So I wanted to ask you about what you can do to help your child's school be its best and therefore, you know, get the best from your child. What are some of the questions you think parents should be asking to inform their decision? Well, I think there are a number of different kinds of questions that, that parents can ask. Some of them come from a point of irritation. If you've been living with a circumstance for a while, then actually you're already quite wound up. Uh, some questions are quite neutral and, and some uh, actually uh, are, are more existential in terms of where uh, your child might be going. I think the important thing for parents to start to understand is that when your child is in a school, they're part of a community and uh, you're in a relationship and that's best for the child. So there are three people that are involved in making sure that children get the best from themselves and that you make sure that you get the best from the school. One is the school. And that includes the senior leadership, the principal of the school, and, of course, your child's teacher. Mm-hmm. And we'll come back to that. Now, the other person that's involved in that or people that are involved in that are the parents. And then, of course, the third element is the child themselves. And all three have to be working um, on a similar mindset and towards similar goals. And, of course, like with any great family, when there can be tensions, uh, it's really important to make sure that Everybody is cutting everyone a little bit of slack and trying to still stay on target for that goal that you're aiming for, Helen. And I think we often get that wrong right from the outset as parents. I speak as a parent that sometimes we focus on a particular outcome or a particular delivery that we want for our child rather than thinking, I actually want the best deal for my child. Let me think how I can get this relationship working at its very best. I think this is tricky. And what I would say out of the pandemic is I've never felt more involved in my children's education. I never felt so connected to what they were learning or how they were learning. Yes. Um, and we've had a message here, which I think kind of ties into what I'm, what I'm trying to say. Uh, Anonymous saying, what does Dr. Neil think about the paid for aspects of education? Does it bring out the worst in parents? And I don't know if it does bring out the worst in parents. You can tell me you've been in a few different education systems. But I do feel like there can be this idea of maybe outsourcing when you're paying and maybe expectations are higher because you are quote-unquote a customer? Yeah, I mean, it, it doesn't bring out the worst in parents necessarily. I've, I've worked in uh, state systems, private systems and international systems. Um, parents can sometimes be challenging. They can sometimes be a great delight, uh, but sometimes they can be challenging. We all know that. We know that of ourselves, really, that sometimes we're at our best and sometimes we're not. But I think where it does go wrong, where an international system, a paid-for system uh, goes wrong, is when parents decide that because they've paid for a thing, the school has to deliver to a certain standard. Also, sorry to interrupt, I also feel like, and this happens not just in schools, this idea of why aren't my exact personal demands being met when we've got a whole host of people who all have their own very specific demands? 
This is very true. So, so the school has to um, help to work with parents, again, focused on that relationship to understand that, as you say, maybe there are 2,000 parents in that particular school and they all have a very particular take on what an ideal education ought to look like. But the school is trying to get the best fit mm-hmm. that it can. Um, on the one hand. On the other hand, of course, schools are always trying to move towards personalization. And I think we're going to see a lot more of that with AI coming over the next five years. We're going to see a, a greater move towards personalization. But it's still very difficult to manage. But on the other hand, uh, we have that situation when uh, parents believe that because I've paid for this, I should get it. And of course, that's only to think about one aspect of that relationship. And it's to have a, a sort of a, a, a client uh, provider relationship there, which isn't what it is. It's, mm-hmm. it's, it's a, um, a community connection between teacher, between parents and between child. And so if, if the school isn't quite able to deliver on your expectations – um, it might be the school's fault, but it, actually it might not be. It might be a combination. It could be parental influence. It could be the child's efforts, the child's uh, abilities and how they're interacting with the teacher. And it needs more curiosity in addressing that issue. Well, that's what we're going to come to next. Some of the nitty gritty, some of the hot, hot button topics from overcrowded classrooms to how to deal with you know, bullying. Dr. Neil with us through until three o'clock today. Lita's asking about rates of teachers quitting here compared to other parts of the world. Um, and interesting one from Bella saying, what is the perception of UAE secondary schools from outside the region? We're getting to the crunch age of should we stay or should we go? Spilling the beans, giving the gossip, giving us the expert take on all things education is Dr. Neil Hopkin. He leads the academic leadership team at Fortas Education. We're talking about how to get the best out of your child's school. Now, a really interesting question from Fab that I think we'll probably unpack at a few different stages. Fab, your name's amazing. Um, Fab saying, uh, when should you give up on a school and just admit that it's either not a good fit or not up to your standards? What happens before that stage, Neil? I mean, it's a great question, Fab. And I think it's, as I say, it's, it's like a relationship. And, you know, when do you give up on a relationship? And there is a time when perhaps you ought to. And we need to understand that. But actually, there are many stages before that when you look back that you think, yeah, I could have handled that differently. And that would have told me more. And I think there are stages that I would go through as a parent. Uh, if you have a particular um, issue that you want to raise or a, a problem that you've identified, talk to, the, to your child's class teacher. That's, that's where it all starts. That's where the main relationship is. That's the main relationship your child has. Mm-hmm. And so it's important for the teacher to understand the conversations that are happening at home and the perspective that parents might have on a particular dynamic to give them an opportunity to fix that problem or to understand the problem better. And if that doesn't work and if you don't feel you're getting anywhere, maybe the teacher is part of the problem tricky maybe you've you've got that as as you were saying earlier that dud teacher then in that case you need to move to somebody who's slightly more senior uh, within the school however your school is structured and if that doesn't get you anywhere you go then to the principal and have a conversation with the principal but really 90 something percent of problems are all solved at the classroom door with the class teacher Mm -hmm. and having that uh, that conversation but if you reach a point when actually you've gone through all these various different stages and it hasn't worked for you, then there is a point at which you might want to say, well, I'm going to look elsewhere. But before you take that step, Fab, just think about what it is you're trying to achieve, which is actually to have a wonderful education and a wonderful nurturing environment for your child. Because when you go to the next school, 
who's to say whether that's going to be any better? And, and Again, what are you going to like do at a that relationship. Point? You know, sometimes you can take your, your problems with you. Maybe it's not about the school. Maybe it's to do with, it, you know, a family dynamic or expectations or, you know, the lens that you're looking at this through. It's not you, darling. It's, it's me. me. You know. Well, can I ask you then as an educator in terms of, and I'm certainly not saying don't move your child. You need to keep your child in a school where they're unhappy. That's not what I'm saying. But I think it's really important to address or acknowledge what can happen to a child's education, their idea of stability and safety, if they are moving schools multiple times? Yes, we, we know that children learn in an optimum fashion when they feel psychologically safe and secure and when they're happy. Uh, and happy learners, uh, if, if happiness has the assumption of psychological safety and security with it, um, happy learners are the ones that learn at the best rate. Now, it might be that you as a parent have other things you think your child should be achieving and, and addressing. But certainly in terms of their academic progress, we know that happiness is important. Alongside that, of course, there are other issues about a child's level of ambition, their self-awareness, their ability to self-direct their learning and own that. So there are many other factors. It's, it's not just a happyology. That, that's obviously not going to get your child anywhere. But the reality is that if, if a child isn't happy, it doesn't matter how great the school is, they're not going to make great progress. So I think one of the factors to get in mind is if you are deciding to move your child from one school to another, is to do really thorough research, first of all, with your child. Mm -hmm. What is it that your child is experiencing and can you articulate it perhaps with them in conversation with them or if they're slightly older maybe they can articulate it themselves so that you can get it down on a piece of paper and you can have a look at it and say what do I think the causes of this might be? What are the underlying issues here beyond the obvious superficially stated reasons that would make me say I want to leave? Dr. Neil Hockman with us today. Get any questions in for him or equally if there's any issues in your school and you need his advice on how to get to the, you know, to the crux of them, this is your chance. A quick question because we're going we're gonna to switch topics maybe next because I want to get your take on the mobile phone mm. proposed ban out of the UK. Bella's saying, uh, Dr. Neil, what is the perception of UAE secondary schools from outside the region? We're getting to the crunch age of should we stay or should we go? I will not break into song. Um, now, you've worked internationally mm. and I know it's quite hard when you're in it as you are at Force Education to think about you know, how the rest of the world might view the UAE secondary system. I feel like it's changed in my time. What do you think? We, we can tell what the rest of the world thinks because we have uh, PISA and TIMS and PEARLS international studies. And so if the way that you measure how well secondary schools are performing, uh, we can already tell that uh, the UAE, Dubai in particular, has had a meteoric rise in standards. I mean, absolutely fantastic. And you would be very hard-pressed to go anywhere else in the world and have as fine an education that is adding value to students. Now, the adding value is important because those tests, those international tests at, at which we've excelled, are just one measure of what a school gives. And it might be the case that you as a family uh, have other interests that might be around sports or might be around the arts, and et cetera, et cetera. And, of course, you would have to then make a direct comparison with the school provision here and wherever else it is that you might be thinking of going mm -hmm. if those are your areas of interest. But in terms of the academic provision, and one would have to say the extracurricular provision that there are, uh, there are in schools here, um, really, it's absolutely at the top of the league table's top ten. There you go. Bella, put your mind at ease. You don't need to pack your suitcases just yet. And yes, out of the UK, banning mobiles in the classroom. What is the status here in the UAE? Is there a, you know, a general guideline? Is it down to the schools and... 
what happens in Dr. Neil's. Joining us in the studio to talk education from Fortis Education, we've got Dr. Neil Hopkin. And before we come to the hot topic of banning mobile phones in the classroom, something being proposed out of the UK, message here on the text line, and you can always reach out anonymously if you prefer, saying, I've got a problem in that I'm not satisfied with the school. We've seen the teacher and others, including the inclusion department. They're suggesting a psychologist for our seven-year-old. What's your recommendation? The cost is 550 dirhams an hour for that construction. So... I know you obviously can't speak to specifics. You don't know this family or indeed this school. But what comes to mind and what would you say as an educator? I think what I would say to to this listener is um, the school has clearly seen something that has given them um, a level of curiosity about what might be happening uh, for this particular child and their development and their understanding. And um, regardless of whether or not I as a parent buy into that and share that belief set – I would listen uh, because it's all about that relationship that we've been talking about. So I would listen to this uh, informed perspective and I would be curious about that. And I think this would be true of all particular responses or uh, initiatives that a parent takes when they're approaching a school is to start from a position of curiosity. I'm noticing this. Have you noticed that? Or I'm not seeing this. What is it that you think is Mm -hmm. happening that might be provoking that? I think I think you're right in terms of we don't see our children in that classroom context, much as like, you know, they don't see the interesting behaviour I get when they're off duty from school. Um, and I think for peace of mind, I probably would be keen to make an informed decision. Yeah, and, work- and whether, whether you, as you say, whether you buy into that, you know, so-called diagnosis or whatever... But I would, I would be intrigued to maybe take it outside of the school and speak to someone independent. If you, if you knew somebody that was involved in some way in the medical profession and they said to you, oh, that looks slightly odd, I think I might get that checked if I were you, um, you, you wouldn't be particularly inclined to say, no, 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 it's fine and ignore it. Mm-hmm. You would want to go and check even if you didn't agree with their particular assessment. Hope that helps and hope everything's all right with your little one. We've only got a couple of minutes left, but I want to ask you, Dr. Neil, because out of the UK, we're seeing uh, Gillian Keegan, who's the UK Education Secretary, saying a mobile phone ban in the classroom would iron out inconsistencies in terms of how schools deal with phones. She's saying we've been concerned about increases in bullying amplified by social media. We want to make it clear, empower heads to say there is no place for phones in the classroom. What is the current guidelines in the UAE, if any, you know, from KHGA or indeed um, other, or I guess it's up to the school? Well, the UAE is in a very different situation to to the one that the Secretary of State in the UK is talking to in terms of um, the uh, the kinds of arrangements we have for schools here. And this is a very nuanced argument around should we have mobile phones or not. It's a little bit like the question of should we have homework or not for primary age children. Mm-hmm. Um, the truth is that there, there are lots of positive reasons for having mobile phones in some particular contexts. It may be that uh, especially in this day and age, there's a lot of um, app-based learning support that can happen uh, within the classroom. And and maybe the school uh, can't actually afford to equip uh, all of the students there with the number of iPads that they need. But we know that by the time that uh, children are aged 12, almost 97% of 12-year-olds have a mobile phone at all different points of the socioeconomic scale. So it might be that having a mobile phone enables some sort of platform-based learning to happen. And that that's a good thing. I think that's quite generous. <laughs> I think I think most most are worried about them 
dossing on and messaging their mates under the desk. This is the problem. So as soon as you come to the negative side of it, then of course the argument is is very clear and plays into parents' concerns, which is basically that, look, um, we think it, it distracts them. Uh, There's a fascinating bit of research that was in educational psychology, which has really prompted the UK's mm-hmm. response, where they discovered not only is it children having mobile phones in the classroom that score lower in exams, but actually if your child is in that classroom and they're not on the phone, they haven't got their phone with them they also score lower because of the distraction in the environment now the reality is of course we understand that that's a problem but but really we're also trying to move our children towards the states when actually they understand how to handle technology and for me common sense has to play a part here most schools in the uae will say to uh, their students there's no place within the classroom uh, for uh, mobile phones. Keep them locked away in your locker. Um, we do, of course, have our eye on that whole 24-7 cyberbullying issue, and that's something which needs to be taken care of. But actually, we're trying to prepare students for digital connection for the rest of their life, and we're trying to promote academic growth, which means put the phone away, don't have the phone near you. But on the other hand, we're trying to make sure that our students become responsible digital citizens. Just because you have a phone doesn't mean you should be cyberbullying someone, doesn't mean that you should be distracting yourself from studies. And so it comes back to, are we going to dictate to our children what to do? Or are we going to help them understand how to behave properly with devices and to behave properly towards one another? Very well said indeed. This is a topic we're going to continue to explore, um, including the apps you need to know as a parent Parent, uh, games as well. Dr. Neil Hopkin, thank you so much for your time. Thank Always you, an absolute pleasure. Um, he is the up there at academic leadership at Fortes Education. Not one, but two inspirational people in the studio today. Michael and Vivian Addo are with us, best known as Mr. and Mrs. Muscle. They have amassed more than 1.6 million followers on Instagram. They have an app. They are couple and fitness goals, and I'm feeling like a right lump behind the microphone. So nice to have you with us. How are you, Michael? Very, very well, thank you. Happy to be here. Um, I want to know... Well, well, we're going to talk fitness in a minute, obviously, but I want to know the love story. How did you and Vivian meet and how did you become Mr. and Mrs. Muscle? So this this goes back several years, nearly two decades. Whoa. Um, we went to school together and our first meeting was at 11 years old under competitive circumstances. Go on. Naturally. So, Rounders. <laughs> um, so in primary school, I had this best friend. We both went to the same secondary school, but he ended up in the same class as Viv. I was in a separate class. And Viv is a very fast individual. I was very fast at primary school. So during one of our first playtime breaks, or um, yeah, I think it was a lunchtime break, came up to me and he was like, there's a girl that I know that would beat you in a race. Oh. I was like, who is it? And oh. then I met Viv and we actually had a race. And? I won, of oh. course. Viv, yeah. be honest. Did you let him win because he was cute? I don't even know. She, no, I she actually could... tried. <laughs> <laughs> I, the thing is, Viv, I don't think Viv found me cute at school because, um, so that was our first meeting at 11 and we didn't actually start dating until 15. Now, fast forward a few decades. Yes. You are known as Mr. and Mrs. Muscle. How did that professional side evolve, Vivian? Tell us a little bit about that. I guess, I mean, you've obviously both always been sporty, but to turn it into a profession, I think, takes it, you know, takes it to the next level. Where did that idea come from? Um, that actually pretty much came from Mike because Mike always was into business. And 
I really wasn't into business at all. And I had just studied um, to become a personal trainer. And he saw that I really enjoyed it and it was something that I was interested in. So he asked me, oh, if I become a personal trainer, will you start a business with me? And I was like, mm, I guess. Like, I wasn't thinking much of it because I, I just had the passion for doing what I was doing, helping people. And I just wanted to see where I could take myself in it as well. So initially, it was supposed to be on like a, a one-on-one training basis that you were working towards. And they, Mike was like, do you know what? Why didn't we just train a million people? <laughs> I, I think, do you know what it was? It's like she said, I was, and have always been into business. My background is sales, business development. And I'd had several businesses that I'd set up that had failed over the years. And it got to a point where everybody, including Viv, my family, were getting fed up. Mm-hmm. Um, and it was like, do you know what? I've always wanted something with Viv. This is going to be my like last ditch attempt to get something going together. Um, so after she became a personal trainer, she recommended me to the place that she studied her training. Uh, Viv, by the way, has a background um, in sports science, sports science degree, was always sporty at school. Um, so I went to go and do my personal training um, qualification. This was like nine years ago and ended up working at the same gym as Viv created Mr. and Mrs. Muscle, which originally was a website that was meant to kind of compete with bodybuilding.com where people can get information on how to train different parts of their body. Um, And then we kind of just grew quite popular at the gym. Mm -hmm. It ended up turning into Viv training a lot of female clients. I trained a lot of the male clients. Some of them were couples. Um, And that's where this kind of concept of Mr. and Mrs. Muscle came from. We're going to be talking about that app next. These guys are here, um, part of the Active on the Beach. They're going to be there this weekend. Uh, So we're going to be talking about maybe meeting these guys in person, doing a session in real life. I was really, really disciplined at working out at home during the pandemic and it has all fallen apart. We're going to talk about how to find your motivation if you haven't got someone right next to you in your ear telling you to go that little bit harder. studio mr and mrs muscle mike and viv are speaking to us they've got more than 1.6 million followers on instagram countless views on youtube and uh helping out people kind of get themselves into shape or stay in shape without that gym going when i wanted to ask you that mike about the impact of the pandemic because when we couldn't go to gyms or when we could but frankly the thought of sitting in someone else's sweat was particularly unappealing you must have seen an explosion of people availing of your expertise online and through the app what impact did the pandemic have on working out at home do you think oh massive impact i think it started there was a time where working out at home or doing bodyweight exercises or not working at the gym didn't seem like it was um the thing to do it wasn't really fashionable. People didn't really um, think it would work. Mm. But then when everyone was stuck indoors, you had people either building gyms, buying dumbbells, buying mats, and just learning how to train. Couldn't buy a kettlebell for love nor money. Yep. Um, yep. All right, Viv, here's my, here's my problem. All right. During lockdown, which we have to say in Dubai didn't last very long, but I didn't fancy going to the gym, so I did work out a lot at home. I've completely lost my fitness mojo. And I am the first one to say I'm really busy, which is absolute garbage because I can find time to scroll, to watch rubbish. I can find it. I have I can do half an hour a day. How can you help me get my mojo back and what equipment would I need? To be honest, I think the best way to get your mojo back is to keep things simple. Um do something that is going to bring enjoyment to you. So you're not gonna think of it as working out. Um, a nice like 10 minute workout as well like if if you put too many time constraints onto it like say if you want to say everyone's like oh you should work out for an hour 
that one hour of working out is going to look really like overwhelming yes and you're not going to want to do it so you're definitely not going to prioritize it so look for a short workout that you can do um something that also that may be low impact sometimes um looking at uh, exercises where plow and jumping, ex- uh, you know, movements are involved, that really kind of like puts you off as well. So look for something that might be a bit more gentle on the body and is doable mm-hmm. and is very easy to follow along. Mike, how are you using tech and I guess the app in particular to help people plug in that exercise into their calendar and their day? Is there a way that you kind of are manipulating our behaviour a bit even. Trying to. So keeping the workouts quite micro, um, like Viv said, kind of helps with the motivation levels. Um, Also, we've built calendar features. Calendar is something that we use in daily life, a lot of us, that say we don't have time, abide by a calendar. So when you slot something into your calendar and it's there and it's short, you're likely to complete it. So that's what we've kind of um, helped build into the app. So we've got a lot of weekly calendars, monthly calendars, and then longer traditional programmes for you to choose from. What about if there's someone who has got an injury or they need to rehab um are there ways of modifying some of the exercises that you guys are doing yes and this was a viv's idea when we initially put mr and mrs muscle together every single i would say actually 99 percent of our workouts have a modification box or window in the actual workout so if you can't do the harder move we've got something that's more low impact and easier to do to follow Good, I was thinking about my old knees. Um, you are this weekend going to be there, Dubai Active, Active on the beach. Um, Viv, what can we expect? We'll get to see you in person instead of just on our phone screens. What are you going to be doing? Um, a lot of fun. We're going to mix things up. Um, it will be very Mr and Mrs Muscle style, but I think that it's going to be a bit more... Um, what's the word? It's just going to be a bit more explosive because we're going to be speaking, uh, we're going to be encouraging. And I think that we've not done this in about four years, four I think. Years. This is our four first, first like, boot camp. So we're going to come with some extra energy. And we just, we're just super light and we just like to have fun with it. So we're going to throw a few little things in there. Bring in the energy. Yeah. We've had a message here um, from Shima saying, um, how do you download the app? Okay, I'll leave that to you, Mike. Last last question. For anyone that was like, okay, do you know what? I could do 10 minutes a day, but I need someone to show me what to do. For sure. Can you break it down for us just in in a few seconds? It has to download the app? Yeah. Go on the App Store. You can go on the Android Store. You can go on Apple TV fire um stick we've got tv apps as well so or go to mr and com, and we have all the information there there you go guys if you want the details you can just send me the word app i will send you the link you can find them all have a great time this weekend guys thank you, thank you. absolute pleasure to catch up with you um i wasn't as timid when they said mr and mrs muscle i was like they are going to be like the gladiators <laughs> no, no, no. you're actually really lovely <laughs> Health news out of the UK that around a million Brits are living with undiagnosed diabetes. The Office for National Statistics looked the data from the Health Survey of England. It involved taking blood samples from a nationally representative sample of people over the age of 16 and it found that 7% of the population had raised blood sugar levels, indicating that they had type 2 diabetes. However, around 30% of those who met that clinical threshold had no formal diagnosis. That's equating to about a million people around England. Charities have labelled this shockingly high and urge those with symptoms to get tested and treated as early as possible to avoid what they call devastating complications. What are those signs and symptoms? What are those complications? We've got Ali Hashmi with us today, the co-founder and chairman at Glucare Health. That's scary stuff, but 
as I was reading that, you didn't look surprised at all. No, the numbers here are actually a lot higher. How much higher? Significantly higher. Oh, gosh. Yeah, so, um, I mean, the estimates for the GCC, and by and large, most of the GCC countries are quite similar in their incidence of diabetes, is probably between 15 to 20% in the various published guidelines. The WHO or the um, World Health Organization, uh, for example, published, I think, around a 19% incidence rate for Saudi Arabia, for example. But then there's the unpublished data where we see some of this and uh, the actual numbers are quite a lot higher. So I think the the, the more correct number is closer to 30% of the population. Whoa. Okay. I mean, the obvious question is why? We've seen cases double in the past two decades in the UK. Here, as you're saying, numbers really, really alarming. Why? Metabolic dysfunction is a multivariate problem. There isn't one particular answer. It's easy to blame one thing. So if you ask most people, they'll say... Buckets of chicken. Yeah, right. <laughs> and I, I think we can probably lay most of the blame as, as an input on, at the feet of food, mm. right? Our food um, supply has changed. Our genetics haven't. Well, this right? is what I wanted to ask you in, in terms of that genetic piece. And if we look at, you know, Middle Eastern people, um, you know, over the last, let's say, a couple of hundred years, the lifestyle's changed hugely the availability of food and the type of food has changed hugely but as you say the genetic composition hasn't so is it the way that people are reacting to diet as well as what they're eating it's a it's a combination of factors so the proportion of our total caloric intake that is represented by highly processed foods has gone up the total caloric consumption has gone up so we're just eating more of bad stuff and our you know on the other side of you know you have calories in on the calories outside we're just doing less stuff you know we're sedentary our lifestyles have changed i mean so look this is not a surprise everyone you know if you ask anybody on the street why why are we so metabolically dysfunctional and diabetic everyone will say oh we're lifestyle and we're sedentary we're <clears throat> not going to the gym and we're eating bad stuff okay great but what do you do about it is the question mm. how do you how do you how do you bend that curve that's the hard question. We are going to be talking about treatments, um, of course, but I wanted to ask you about signs and symptoms. You know, those UK charities saying that if you have symptoms, get tested, get treated. Do you feel like enough people know about the signs and symptoms or is it still very much a bit of a silent killer where it can get to the point where it's almost too late before you even realise it? I think that's antiquated advice. So not to go against our peers and friends in the UK, but I think waiting until you have signs and symptoms of diabetes is you're it's too late You've, the damage has already been done if you get to a point where you're starting to see you know the significant weight gain the lethargy and tiredness and you know frequent urination at night these are all the common symptoms but if you're already starting to see that you've been metabolically dysfunctional for years mm -hmm. so the better advice would be get tested get screened the screening process to just test your metabolic state is accessible and inexpensive. Can you talk to us about that screening? I did have a little blood prick test at the weekend. Yeah, um, you, it, that was your HbA1c. I wish I could tell you that. I've got the, num <laughs> I've got the number on my phone, but it, it, was, it was normal. Good. Um, which was a relief. Yeah. <laughs> um, is it a case of, you know, let's be honest, is it going to your, to your GP, your family doctor for blood testing or you know, can you go straight to a specialist clinic such as Gluca? You know what? We're going to companies now because we just want more people to get tested. So I'm sending my team to employers and we're setting up shop in their, in their boardrooms and we're just doing free testing for come folks. Come in, come in, come in. Yeah, and by the way, 
something that most people don't know because their insurance companies don't want them to know mm-hmm. is that it's actually mandated by the Dubai regulatory agency that regulates insurance that um, regular screening for diabetes is a covered service in every health insurance package. So everyone has a free screening available to them. That's a rare and beautiful thing. No one knows that. Um, Ali with us today. Um, Callum saying, my elderly father in the UK, uh, diagnosed with pre-diabetes a few years ago, he had the blood test. Uh, they told him he was pre-diabetic, then sent him home with no advice or help at all. I told him to cut out as much sugar per day as he could. He used to have tons in cereal, fruit yogurts, etc. Within a year, he was out of that pre-diabetic rage. And then they had the cheek to ask him how he'd done it. The only help they offered him was to put him on drugs. Um, Can we talk about precision medicine and I guess that preventative piece, Ali? I know this is something you're really passionate about, Glucare, through monitoring mainly and incorporating tech. How exactly are you doing it? I mean, that, that story from your listener is, um, is far too common. I was going to say shocking, but not surprising. My, one of my own friends and colleagues here, uh, when he heard that I was building a diabetes center, he says, oh gosh, I'm type two diabetic. I said, really? Why didn't you tell me that sooner? He's like, oh, you know, I was diagnosed a year and a half ago. I said, okay. And what have you done since then? <laughs> and? Nothing. This is a Cambridge educated fellow who has diagnosed, I won't name which hospital, but one of the renowned hospitals in this city. And they sent him home with the instructions to simply go Google what the appropriate diet would be for someone of his health status and said, look, if you have any other issues, just come back. I mean, look, our healthcare systems, the foundational architecture of our healthcare systems are flawed. It, it doesn't work. That's one of the main – so aside from food and exercise and the stuff that we control, our system, our healthcare system is designed to only deal with you when you have a problem. So it's dealing with the sick rather than working Correct. on the wellness. Correct. So when we tackled this, we set all that aside. I mean I don't really care what other hospitals do and what other clinics do. We built a facility in order to first and foremost find the people, right? So that's massive screening, mm-hmm. right? And so I, every – HR manager listening to this should immediately go and check their insurance policies and they will see they have free screening as part of it. And they should find a provider, whether it's us or somebody else, to help them do that and identify people who are at risk. And that's super easy to do and very inexpensive. Next, we are going to talk about what can happen if type 2 diabetes in particular is left untreated and what treatment looks like now in 2024. Yes, there are there drugs, but what about those lifestyle factors? What about the secret source that only those in the know can share? He's in the studio, Al Hashmi from Glucad. <laughs> Ali Hashmi with us today, the co-founder and chairman of Glucare Health. Um, Just talking about news out of the UK that around a million Brits are living with undiagnosed diabetes. And he's saying the numbers here are even worse. Um, Quickly to the text line, no name on this message and you can get in touch anonymously saying, what advice would you give someone who's living with HBALC around 5.8%? I don't know what I just said, Ali, but I know this means something to you. <laughs> yeah, so for the benefit of your, of your listeners, HbA1c is a, is a blood test. So that stands for hemoglobin A1c. And to put it very simply, that very easy blood test um, will give you a sense of how high your blood sugar has been on average over the last three or four months. So you can't game it by you know, not eating sugar the, the night before or something. And, um, and that's the simplest, easiest sort of way to identify anyone whose blood sugar has been elevated for a period of time. 
what would be a happy place and where does 5.8 fall on that scale? Generally, you want to be below 5.7. That's considered normal. Anything between 5.7 and 6.5 is considered pre-diabetic. Anything above 6.5 is considered diabetic. Anything above 7 is considered poorly controlled diabetic. Mm -hmm. And here's a shocking stat for you. The 100,000 patients that are currently being cared for in Abu Dhabi by Imperial College London Diabetes Center, today, their average is 7.4. Severe. Yeah. So they're still poorly controlled despite hundreds of millions of dollars being spent on their care. Can you reverse diabetes through lifestyle factors alone? So just to be careful with terminology, some people call it diabetes reversal. We prefer not to. We prefer to call it remission. Because once diabetic, you're always at risk of relapsing into diabetes. Um, but yes, you can push it into remission. Absolutely. I wanted to ask you about what can happen if left untreated. UK charities are saying, you know, the figures are shockingly high and, you know, saying there's devastating complications if you don't get the treatment that you need. What have you seen, whether it's in clinic, anecdotally, or through the work you're doing at Glucare? Let me first put a dollar value on it. So if you take someone who's non-diabetic and compare them to someone who's a, who becomes poorly controlled type 2 diabetic, the delta in total lifetime cost of care, and these are US numbers, right? So it'll be different despite the market is about a half a million dollars, right? That's a huge number. Um, but, you know, to break it into tangible things that you can think about. Or how you'd feel or what you, or can, how you'd feel, what you can't do, yeah. You know, um, glycemic dysfunction, in other words, high blood sugar, is a problem of the blood, right? So you have all of this extra sugar floating around in your body, and because the blood goes everywhere, it causes damage everywhere. That's why diabetics have so many different types of problems, the root cause is the same. Mm -hmm. So in your eyes, you've got these tiny capillaries that are feeding your retina, right? Guess what happens? Diabetes-related retinal uh, issues. And it's called diabetic retinopathy. It's blindness, eventually. You get amputations because your circulatory system to your feet is dysfunctional. You get nerve issues. You get kidney issues, liver issues. And in the past few years, they're starting to call... Um, neurodegenerative diseases like Alzheimer's disease, type 3 diabetes. So there's a link between lifelong glycemic dysfunction and uh, neurological deficits. So it's wide-ranging complications downstream. In other words, it's the, it's the worst way to die because you end up, let's say, spending the last 10, 20 years of your life with major debilitating complications that totally erode your quality of life. Ali, in terms of you know, people listening today, what percentage do you think of people are living with diabetes knowingly or unknowingly? Look, that's hard to, that's hard to say without doing a widespread sort of screening. And I know in, in Abu Dhabi, they're actually doing some efforts now to do widespread screening. I can tell you about some of the data that we've collected. So we're doing a lot of these corporate screens and it's shocking. I mean, one of our first ones was a, it was a healthcare brokerage company. So these are literally the people- In that, the industry. In the industry. They sell health insurance and they wanted to take us to their clients to basically show what a new model of care looks like. And I said, well, how about we do you guys first? And the guy laughed. He's like, listen, thanks. I appreciate it. But you know, my office is a bunch of young, primarily Filipino dudes that play basketball on the weekends. They're all healthy. You know, average age in the mid thirties. They're, they're, they're not diabetic. And I said, well, let's see. So we went and we did a screening for them. So the average age of his office was 32 years old, and the demographic was primarily male and primarily Filipino. What do you reckon the incidence of undiagnosed prediabetes was? Oh, I'm going to say 1 in 12. 
33%. Oh, wow. One in three of those 32-year-old men were already pre-diabetic. So my next question is, what, what's in your canteen? <laughs> right? So it's, I mean, it's, it's, it's a lot worse than we all think. Ali, for anyone that wants your details, with your permission, if they want to send the word health, we can send out the information at Gluco, which I think is a website, it's a fantastic resource, but obviously there's lots of call to action there in terms of individual investigation, but also you're talking there about going into companies, into gyms, and as you previously mentioned, you are more covered by your insurance than you might realise. So please take control of this. It's not going to go away by itself. Yeah, most of what we do is actually covered by insurance. Ali, thank you so much. Thank you. Absolute pleasure. And thank you for downloading this episode of the Afternoons with Helen Farmer podcast. Don't forget, you can subscribe. You'll get direct to your phone as soon as it's out. And you can listen to me live on Dubai Eye 103.8, Monday to Friday between 2 and 5 p.m. You've been listening to a Dubai Eye 103.8 podcast. To enjoy lots more from Dubai Eye in the United Arab Emirates, just go to DubaiEye1038.com or find them wherever you normally get your podcasts.